When Isaiah prophesied the coming of the Messiah, he said his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. When Jesus' birth was announced to the shepherds, the angelic host sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the Sunday before the crucifixion, he entered as Zechariah had prophesied. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There was an obvious expectation of peace at the coming of Jesus. But when he first sent out the twelve, to declare the coming of the kingdom of heaven, he warned them, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. It was on that same occasion that he promised the apostles that when they would be delivered up to courts, scourged, and accused of crimes deserving of death, that the Holy Spirit would give them the words to say. This we witnessed taking place last week, after which the Jewish council marveled at the confidence of Peter and John, concluding that they had been with Jesus. But apparently the peace offered in the coming of Jesus is conditioned by the response of those to whom it is offered. And those who refuse to accept the terms of peace are obviously not men with whom God is pleased and therefore do not receive the promised peace. Now this creates division in the world. A sword not peace. Separating even families, three against two and two against three. And rather than making life harmonious by solving all our problems, faith in Jesus often creates problems. It created them for Peter and John, and it created them for the religious leaders who arrested them. In fact, it led to their asking, what shall we do with these men? Indeed, if we would be faithful witnesses to Jesus in the world today, that question will be asked of us as well. What do we do with these men? Let's see how the Jewish council answered that question and how the apostles the church, and the Lord himself answered it as well. Continuing our study in Acts chapter 4, we look first at the council's answer to the question. But when they had ordered them to go aside out of the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? 
For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. I'm sure you recall the circumstance here. Peter and John had just healed a lame beggar which attracted a large crowd, and they took the opportunity to once again preach in the temple. Now, the priests, the temple guards, the Sadducees, they didn't like that. So they arrested them, threw them in jail, kept them in jail overnight. The next morning, they questioned them. And Peter turned the tables on them. He not only defended their action in healing the man, he accused his accusers of crucifying the one who had made the man well. And the one who was, in fact, the only one who could really make anyone well, who could save them from the effects of sin. Well, that threw the council into a tizzy. So they ordered everyone out of the courtroom, including Peter and John, and they went into executive session. They conferred with one another and asked, what shall we do with these men? They couldn't deny what had happened through them. A noteworthy miracle had taken place, and it was apparent to all in Jerusalem. They couldn't deny it. But they did refuse to accept its implications for themselves. Peter made it clear that what was done through them was a call to repentance for what they had done to Jesus. They didn't want to heed that call to repentance. They didn't want to change. They liked the life they had, and so they chose to ignore the truth. They didn't want to be changed by it. And they thought if they would just ignore it, it would go away and not affect them. But they couldn't risk it with the people. You know, they certainly did not want the people to be changed by the message the religious leaders chose to ignore. If everyone else changed, they would lose their standing, their authority, their position in the community. And so they viewed the truth like a disease that had to be quarantined so it wouldn't spread. Their answer to the question, what shall we do with these men, was to try to silence them, to threaten them, and to warn them to speak no more to any man in the name of Jesus. Through intimidation, they hoped they could silence them that is still the way the world responds if it becomes evident that we have been with Jesus. When we start talking and acting like Jesus, declaring his absolutes and exposing hypocrisy in the world, it's not going to be well received. It won't be politically a lot of things that our world is beginning to believe that we cannot accept. And when we take a stand, it puts us in opposition to the world. But if we're speaking the truth, 
No one will be able to prove us wrong. So the only option other than accept the truth is to try to silence the truth. And this the world does all the time. There's an obvious bias against Christianity in the media and a tendency to dismiss as irrelevant the Christian perspective on just about everything. We live in a world that does not want to know the truth because it doesn't want to change. And so it responds, as did the council, by trying to silence men who speak the truth. How did the apostles respond to this intimidation? What was their answer to the question, what shall we do with these men? Let's see. Verses 18 through 22. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which they might punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. In effect, the apostles' answer was, do whatever you must, and we'll do what we must. The council's command was in direct opposition to Christ's great commission. They commanded the apostles not to speak or teach it all in the name of Jesus. But Jesus had commissioned them to go into all the world, to make disciples, to baptize, to teach. And now they were being commanded not to teach in the name of Jesus. What should they do? Should they obey the authorities or not? Now Paul would teach us the importance of obeying those in authority. And he taught that to resist those in authority over us is to oppose the ordinance of God. Establishing a very hard principle for us sometimes to abide. But what if the authorities command us to do or not to do something that is in direct opposition to a command of God? What then? Well, apparently, Peter and John felt that in such a situation, civil disobedience was permissible, even essential. That when a command of God comes into conflict with a command of man, God wins. Now, do note that it was a clearly expressed command of Christ that was being countermanded here. Not just something that seemed unfair or unchristian. Apparently the only time civil disobedience is permissible for a Christian is when they are being ordered to disobey a clearly expressed command of their Lord. And even then, 
It's not to be done with the spirit of rebellion, of defiance and disrespect. Notice how Peter and John handled it. Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. And I believe their tone of voice was respectful, not defiant or sarcastic. I believe they respectfully declined to obey the council's order. We cannot stop speaking what we've seen and heard. We know who Jesus is, what he did, and what he told us to do, and we've got to do it, no matter what. They made it clear that they had to obey their Lord, and they did so openly. They didn't lie. They didn't pretend. They didn't say one thing and do another. They openly stated what they had to do and made it clear that they were willing to face the consequences for their action. That was their answer to the question, what do you do with us? Do what you feel you must, but that's not going to stop us. We know what we have to do, and we're going to do it. We too must be willing to take such a stand and not be intimidated into silence. In spite of pressure to do otherwise, we must openly speak the truth as revealed in God's Word. We cannot allow our society to muzzle us. Well, at that point, the council realized there was nothing more they could do. They had no real grounds for punishment. And the people would have been outraged if they had tried to punish Peter and John for healing a man lame for over 40 years. And so they threatened them further and let them go. And where did they go? They went to their companions, looking for support for their actions and the stand they had taken. They went to the church and found its answer to the question, what shall we do with these men? And when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is thou who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, thy servant, didst say, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. When they were released, they went to their own companions. They went to the church. Now, obviously, they didn't go to all 5,000 men who had become Christians by this time, but they went to a small body of believers they were close to. They went to other apostles and 
close friends in the church. And when they reported what had happened from the miracle to the threats, the church's first response was to pray with them. They lifted up their voices to God with one accord. And notice how they prayed. They didn't cry out in anguish, God, we've got a problem, you've got to do something. They didn't do that. They began, oh Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. Now why did they start that way? Were they just flattering God so they could then get what they wanted? No. They were worshiping God. They were acknowledging his sovereignty. They were reflecting on his nature. And why were they worshiping God? They worshiped God to get everything else in perspective. To get their minds on him and off their problems. To enable them to see the problems in the proper light. You know, by preaching and teaching, they were doing what the Creator, the Creator, had commissioned them to do. The problems they were facing weren't their problems, they were His problems. And He could handle it. And you know, that's the place for us to start when we gather together. We bow before our Creator and acknowledge his lordship over our life and the issues we face. We begin in worship. Then they looked to the word of God. They sought to understand the situation by looking to scripture. They knew the Holy Spirit speaks through the written word, and so they looked for a passage that applied to their situation and they found it in the Psalms. Opposition to Christ had been prophesied. And they recognized that the attacks were against the risen Lord at work in their lives. It really wasn't against them. So they didn't take it personally. They didn't cry, why is this happening to us? As they had done for a thousand years. The Gentiles were raging, neighing like horses, and the people of Israel were devising futile things. They were fighting against the work of God. The kings of earth had taken their stand against Jesus, and the rulers, the Sanhedrin, were gathered together against him. So what was happening was no shock. It was expected. God had said it would happen. In fact, he had predestined that it would. The Creator knew what was happening, and He was still in control. In fact, the persecution would be the very thing that would spread His message. Like someone trying to stamp out a grass fire in the wind, the more they would try to stomp it out, the quicker it would spread. The Jewish leadership would find this out as with the Romans, and everyone else throughout history who might try, including the communists, the Islamists, and the secularists of today.
be silenced. The church understood that because it prayed, it worshipped, and it studied. And as a result, it could offer support and encouragement to Peter and John. What was the church's answer to what do we do with these men? We encourage them and support them. When the world tries to silence those who would speak for Christ, the church cannot turn the other way and protect her political interests. It must stand with those who are brave enough to take a stand, as long as the stand is right. And then together, seek God's affirmation that they are doing what he wants. That's what the church did. When Peter and John went to them, together they sought the Lord's answer. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence while thou dost extend thy hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of thy holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. I love their prayer. I love their prayer. Notice how they did not attempt to tell God how to handle the situation. They didn't even make a suggestion. They simply asked him to take note of it. I like that. They really understood what prayer is for. Prayer isn't an attempt to get God to do what we want. Prayer is yielding to what he wants and asking for the confidence and strength to do it. That's what they were seeking. Grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. And they sought that confidence by asking that he continue healing and working miracles through them in the name of Jesus. That's what he said he would do. What he had been doing and what they requested he continue doing. And he immediately affirmed that he would by miraculously shaking the place where they were. He assured them that he would do what he had promised to do. And when he did, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking the word of God with boldness. Now, I do not believe this was another outpouring of the Spirit like they had experienced on Pentecost. The Spirit simply filled them with the boldness needed to do what they knew God wanted them to do. The Lord's answer to the question, what shall we do with these men, was to assure them they were doing his will and to empower them 
to do it. Now, what about the miracles? How do they play out in our life today? Should we be praying for miracles? Should we be praying that God literally shake this church? I don't think so. I don't think so. Today, there's no longer a need for God to perform miracles to affirm his will or to literally shake the church to give us confidence. His will for us is the same as it has always been, and he's already affirmed it. He did so through sufficient signs and miracles in the past. If before we did anything for him, we had to have a miraculous affirmation that we were doing the right thing, we would be stifled if nothing happened. Today we walk by faith, not by sight. The miracles were there to confirm the message that was now being proclaimed. And that message has been proclaimed for 2,000 years. We don't have to say, God, what do you want us to do? We know. He proved it. And he wrote it out for us through his apostles and his word. Today, all we need to do is read it again in his word and act upon it. And we can act upon it boldly and confidently if we will rely on the Holy Spirit who indwells us. We don't have to wait for the Spirit to move. The Spirit has come in. When we accepted Christ, when we were washed clean of our sin and made made a a habitation that was pure and holy through the blood of Christ. His Spirit came in to us. The Spirit is here. All we need to do is rely on the strength His Spirit gives us. Look to the Scriptures that the Spirit has inspired and claim the power the Spirit gives do what we find in the Word to do. You know, living a life that honors Christ is not always going to be easy. In our day and age, in our culture, many of us find it rather easy. But it's not always like that. And it's not always going to be like that. And some are indeed facing conflict today around the world and here. Our culture is changing quickly from a Christian culture to an after-Christian culture. Many are still hanging on to a Christian memory. They still sense what's right and wrong. But the loudest voices in our culture are saying, what's wrong is right. What are we going to do? I pray that we'll always have the courage to be a problem (laughs) and cause the world to ask, what do we do with these men? And when the world tries to silence us, threatening preachers that they 
not engage in hate speech by reading the scriptures. May we have the courage to say, do what you must, and we'll do what we must. May we have the courage to trust and obey the one who has sent us into the world with a message that the world isn't always ready to embrace. Let's trust him and let's obey.